know, maybe you should give me your phone number, you know, just in case. In case of what? You know, in case of life. I just had a great time, and I, I'd never be able to find you again. Well, if we're meant to meet again, then we'll meet again. Welcome to episode 24 of I Think I Like This Movie, America's Least Necessary Film Criticism Podcast. I am Noah Frank, joined as always by my co-host, Will Vitka. And this week, we travel back to the last innocent days of New York City with 2001's Serendipity, the story of two attractive white people making it as hard as possible to be together. There's no guest this week, as this was my 20-year-old movie. So, Will, do you have anything to ask me? How many privacy laws would you violate to find your soulmate? Uh, with the help of a reporter, no less, who, like, clearly, like, uh, just doesn't really have any ethics at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, right. It's, it, it, we, we throw every kind of caution to, to the wind. That's kind of a, the whole thing with it, with this movie. But everybody seems to be in on it. Like everyone, eventually everybody, everybody buys in. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's a, it's ridiculous kind of premise. But actually, why don't you run us, this is your movie. So run us through that premise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, I I don't know if I've ever, I mean, it's certainly been a number of episodes since I've had to uh, recap our plot. But uh, I think I've got it in, I think I've got it in four sentences. So here we go. Uh, Sarah and Jonathan are two beautiful, successful white people who meet grabbing for the same pair of black gloves at Bloomingdale's. Both are in relationships, but clearly there's a spark between them. But Sarah's insistence on leaving things to fate and only writing each other's numbers on a $5 bill and in a book leaves them to not seeing each other for several years. Both are later engaged to be married, but can't shake the thought of one another and go on a series of close-miss escapades before both admit their fiancés aren't who they are meant to be with, at which point they finally serendipitously meet once more. I think that's three sentences. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Did I miss anything? No, no, because it, it is, when you get into the nitty gritty, it is like convoluted the movie. There's so many programmed missed opportunities, I guess. Well, for the characters, not for the film. The right. film's fine. But... Right, I mean, the whole the whole sort of thing is is, a, is a, an escalating uh, set of, of closer and closer near misses that take you through. I honestly, for being a 90 minute film, they are able to set up many different themes that they then hit again as they go back through. Like they, there's like six or seven things that they're able to both like establish and then revisit, which is yes, pretty I, impressive. I was actually really, really impressed toward the end of the movie, how many callbacks they had to things that had been set up. Right. Um, it's, it's a well-written script, if nothing else. Yeah, right. I mean, like them both hitting 23, obviously the 23rd floor thing, the the fake outs with the with the book there's multiple fake outs of the book there's multiple fake outs with the five dollar bill he keeps meeting sarah's and having sarah you know the name like the, thrown around the dalmatian is a nice touch like when when you're know, walking through new york city the the golf range uh the the actual coming back to serendipity obviously which is our uh patisserie i think i think we, we learned i was just gonna call it a coffee shop until uh filet mignon called it a patisserie um and then of course the snow motif filet minion minion yeah. <laughs> mr minion um yeah I, I right i mean they, they do a good job of of setting stuff up and then paying it off in a way that at least on this podcast, uh, does not always happen in terms of, of uh, pieces of script that end up just floating in the ether uh, later on. <laughs> but so I, my, my history with this movie was I saw this movie in college within a year or two after it came out. 
2002, 2003 on DVD. Maybe saw it more than once, didn't see it more than two or three times. But I remember really liking it and being surprised. I, I feel like it was one of my girl friends who was like, you would like this movie. And I was like, really? And they were like, no, no, you would. And I, and I watched it and I remember that I, I would recommend it to other people as the only good romantic comedy when I was like 19. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it is like, it is fairly smart. It's not without its problems, but it, but it's, it's crisp. It, it, it's tight. It moves along. It's got good character actors kind of sprinkled all around it. And, you know, and I mean, it's, it, you buy it, you buy into it, you buy into the main couple, which is kind of the, the most important thing that you need in a romantic comedy is that you actually buy the chemistry of the, of the, the main couple. But had you seen this before? Well, I hadn't even, I hadn't even heard of it uh, until you, you brought it up. I didn't, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I had a bunch of problems with certain aspects of it, but for the most part, I, there are a handful of times where I was just infuriated by what I was seeing specifically with the, and of course he's dressed as a devil, the little kid who presses all of the buttons on the elevator when John Cusack is trying to hit the floor that Kate Beckinsale is on. All right. Uh, Go, buddy. We are, we're going up here. Oh, that's okay. Josh likes to ride either way. Don't you, Josh? Don't do that! Don't press those! Hey, calm down. He's just a kid. Right. That, that made me, like, physically angry just like if a kid did that to you you would be angry kind of thing like yeah well not only would i be angry but i would have had a very severe conversation with the father who's like oh he's just a child it's like well maybe you're a bad dad right and then i would have jumped out and gone to a different elevator and gone to the 23rd floor yeah but that's just me yeah i realized that like movie needs to happen is a big part of this yeah and, and he's you know he's he's frazzled in the moment you know yeah yeah, yeah. It's, sure. I don't think it's a fault. It was just infuriating. Well, let's I since since we're sort of already uh, down that road, why don't we get into plot holes, continuity errors, uh, stuff that that maybe stuck out? Were, were there were there other things that that really like it was too contrived or or it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked this way? Uh, stuff like that, that that stood out to you? They're actually it's uh, again it's a fairly tight script. They pack a lot into ninety minutes, which I appreciate because. Every, we've mentioned this on previous episodes. Every time I see that a Marvel movie is, is two and a half, three hours long, I kind of want to take a bullet to the head. This stays about 90 minutes. It's probably a little bit less because they're including the credits in that one yeah. hour 30 measurement. The, um, the one thing that really stood out, Kate Beckinsale's soon-to-be fiance being like Yanni? Yeah. That's you know, that's just like so strange. There are no like legitimate plot holes, I don't think, other than like some of the privacy I've, law stuff. I've got, you, I've got maybe one. Got, okay. Yeah. But I so the the big one to me was I mean, she she gets on the plane with her friend's wallet, which means that she had to go through security oh, with her friend's yeah. wallet, which even in the spring of 2001 is not a very likely thing to have happened <laughs> to have gotten all the way to her seat somehow without having to present her identification like it just right it, it it's a shame that like it's a shame that they just didn't have her buy 
I don't know, a money clip or something, just something, I don't know, something else that's where they were like, you can just remove that flat hole, like of it, of, well, that's where your ID would be. Um, some other handbag, something, right, that was Prada that, that the dot, that the money ended up in. Like, it, I know that they used it to forward the plot. It ended up being the $5 bill and everything, but it's, right, it just like, no, you, you would not have gotten on the plane with her wallet. So, so um, there was one thing that I thought was a plot hole where we don't see the Twin Towers because this was filmed in 2000. But right. I looked at I looked it up, and it turns out that this was released after the terror attacks of 2001, and they digitally removed wow. the World Trade Center. Now there you go. So that's a not plot hole, plot hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Well, along those lines, uh, you're you're the New York geography expert. I'm the the Bay Area geography expert, and there was one little one of those things that happens in seemingly every movie that has a scene shot in the Bay Area they always do this wrong and i think it's just because of of they want the view but she was getting on a, a ferry to go to marin but she was clearly going to san francisco <laughs> and and it's the same thing in the graduate when when he's supposed to be driving to berkeley the graduate the top, kept playing in my head during this movie, really. on, on, on the top of the bay bridge but the top of the bay bridge goes into san francisco not into the east bay it's, and like i feel like it's just every time it's just because they want the certain shot and it's like well okay but that's not the way the boat goes <laughs> um they, the other thing was was a little more up in the air, which was just like, he works for ESPN. He's not poor, but like, he's a sports journalist. He's a producer on a, like a, on ESPN News. And when and he, all the expenses at the last second at this department store, the last second plane flights for him and his buddy, like one, wouldn't his wife like see all of these charges on the credit card or his yeah, fiance? Yeah. And two, like, we're... He just has like, I mean, this was again, 20 years ago. That's probably three or $4,000 by the end of it in that, in that era of money. So we're talking more like, you know, eight or $10,000. Right, right. One of, yeah. One of my notes is literally just like, I guess these people have a lot of money to burn. Uh, right. Ugh. It suffers from like the friends, you know, syndrome of, of just everybody is, is rich and white and beautiful in New York and nobody has, has any problems. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was the only other thing that, that kind of, I was like, mm, yeah, okay, I'll allow it, sure, but you know. Yeah, I think that I didn't. So I didn't specifically check the New York geography regarding the subway entrance that John Cusack enters after the serendipity thing. But right. they do say it's on the east side, and the the four, five, six trains do run on the east side. So I was like, all right, that's probably close enough. Yeah, I like they do enough like. Uh, cuts between like when he's meandering and walking around that like yeah he's in central park now sure yeah okay he's, well yeah and i and i did I, I checked to make sure that they actually did film in new york and they did and so it's like all right fine yeah you can you, you can there. tell you can tell enough there's enough background shots where you're like yeah, you know this yeah. this this isn't you know toronto masquerading as new york or whatever <laughs> <laughs> let's get it let's get into the characters uh, you you mentioned my favorite forgotten character which is john corbett <laughs> I think I laughed in every scene that he was in. Like he, for for being such a small character, just blowing on that Shania, the music video, that just like every single thing was so absurd and perfect. And just like, <laughs> like, like I, I always hate that like they stereotype like the Bay Area people as these like weird hippies and whatever, but like it, it was it was it was really funny. Like like his his entire getup, his entire thing was hilarious. It was it was legitimately funny, especially when he was fighting vikings with a clarinet by playing them a particular song yeah right <laughs> <laughs> but yeah when it, like i just oh lars there's a <laughs> there's a uh there's a mike berbiglia 
uh, joke from a long time ago. I was actually probably right about this era, like a few years later, uh, where he's talking about Kenny G and just like how much Kenny G sucks and, and how like no one will tell him that he's bad. And he's just like blown away on his horn. And like, that's all I could think of when I'm watching him like in, in, the, in the live show. And he's just, he's just like jamming on this horn. <laughs> it's like, okay. Oh, so into it. Yeah, yeah the, the, the hippie fusion concert thing. It, it worked because it was clearly a parody of like that scene, but what really sold it was uh, Kate Beckinsale being so into it and so applauding. Like when that that crap song was done, I was like, right. "Oh my god, they're they're going for it!" And it yeah. was like it was like a legitimately great moment where I was just like, "Okay." They also, I, I really, I very much appreciated this shot. Like there were, there were some really good shots. And, and when they, you first see him, like he set up the, the gift inside the gift inside the gift thing, which is something I used to do to my friends. Uh, uh, I yeah, younger. I was going to say that actually drove me nuts. <laughs> um, but, but the, when he enters, he's in like the shadows in the background, you don't see him. And then he, and then he, he enters and what you see is his hand with that horrible ring on on his pointer finger. It was it was a perfect way of just being like, oh god, like this gross man. Like, yeah, this dude sucks. Yeah, and then he uh, fucked up the ring size, and she had right. to like suck on her finger to get it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like they 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 had it where his hand just like entered the frame, like as his face was coming. It was like, like a horror movie shot. Yeah, but it's it's a really nice little touch there to just like immediately put you off to like, oh god, this guy. <laughs> um on, on the other side from the characters for me at least i like i felt like they missed a chance to to like have more fun with with molly shannon's character and have her be able yeah. to be more funny because you get a ton of jeremy piven right and he's 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 john cusack's counterpart he's his his buddy who's sort of you know holding his hand through this and you get some from molly shannon but it's it's more like it's more like i can't believe you're doing this and i'm you know i'm I'm uh, it's more dramatic it's not as funny and I just I felt like they could have punched up like she had the one really good line where she's making fun of like the woman buying the lamp in in out of the store out of her store in back in San Francisco (laughs) oh yeah she's a pain in the ass (laughs) that was good it was you know she was she was being punchy and snappy and then like you she basically wasn't funny at all the rest of the movie it just wasn't there were no funny lines for her yeah, there's a very strange disparity in the way that the partners, I don't know if this is done on, on gender lines. I don't know. I don't actually know who wrote this, but there is a very severe disparity between the John Cusack, Jeremy Piven, New York stuff and the Kate Beckinsale, Molly Shannon, San Francisco stuff, where even my dumbass noticed it, where I was just like, okay, you would think that they, Jeremy Piven and Molly Shannon would be like, the direct counterparts to John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale, but Kate Beckinsale's fiance, Lars, clearly totally sucks in every conceivable way. Meanwhile, John Cusack's uh, Bridget Moynihan character, fiance, is seems to be just like a legitimately good human being with a- Yeah, or at uh, least uh, normal. Like, normal, like, yeah. yeah. So like, why, why is John Cusack clearly a psychopath throughout the course of this film? And Kate Beckinsale seems to have established herself as a therapist on the West Coast with a reasonably grounded friend who, as you said, she doesn't get a lot of chances to be funny, but that it seems like some, it's a very strange disparity that I don't know how to describe exactly. Well, I, and so I I think that, that uh, there's both a positive and a negative here. I, I really like the fact that the movie takes no 
it doesn't fuck around. It gets the meet cute is the opening scene, which is so rare in, in a in a yeah. romantic comedy. I mean, you, we are right into it, and so we we see the connection. We care. We want this to work right away because these are the only characters we know. We don't meet the other you know fiancés. We don't meet the there's like no. We we meet our central characters, and I think they do a really good job with that, and that drives the plot. But right, there's this thing hanging over the whole thing. It's that it's a little creepy that like they're both with somebody else and like they never they never are like, oh, well, it's not really serious or like, you know, I'm unhappy, like clearly unhappy. Like there's like a real good reason why I'm just like willing to throw it all away for this stranger I just met randomly. And then and they never quite get back to it. And we also don't really know. It's it's unclear whether or not that is John Cusack's girlfriend in the beginning, whether Bridget Moynihan is that girlfriend. It seems mm. like not, but it's unclear. We just know it's, it's several years later and the, and he's getting married to somebody. We know that it's not her boyfriend because her boyfriend was somebody else in, in New York. Like this is some other dude. So like she's got more, <laughs> a little more of an excuse, I guess, in terms of like, well, this wasn't going to work anyway with <laughs> whoever she was with. But right, they, they never, they never really quite get into it. And you're like, ah, eh, both these people are, well, you know. I, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed their chemistry. The chemistry was very, very good, especially for a rom-com of that era where sometimes you just see, I can't think of a great example. Oh, wait, actually, I can think of a great example. There was a movie that came out in 2009 called All About Steve yeah. that, that my mother, for some insane reason, thought we should all watch literally the other night. My mom likes Hallmark movies. This wasn't a Hallmark movie, but it was a terrible one. And it starred Sandra Bullock, Bradley Cooper, and it was just, I think it was nominated for like five Razzies. And Sandra Bullock and Bradley Cooper, even though they were supposed to be opposites, it maintained this, that same weird stalkery thing we see throughout this film, but it's even worse somehow. And at the same time, Sandra Bullock and Bradley Cooper had like negative chemistry. Yeah. It was just kind of the worst thing. So for this, something like this, a rom-com where John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale are clearly actually enjoying each other's company on, on screen, that's awesome. It's a fine line to walk, for sure. It is, it is. But yeah, the idea that the, the audience is supposed to get behind these people cheating on their significant others, like four yeah. minutes out of the gate, it's kind of like, <laughs> Like I almost... Like, I understand that it's like, well, that's why they don't get together right in this moment. But like, you could have just played her sort of like whimsy as like, they, they didn't have to be in relationships. Like they didn't. Yeah. They didn't, no, they didn't they, have to be. She, she could have been, just been like, you know what? This has been really fun, but this is who I am as someone who thinks that fate will take care of it anyway. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm still going to make us go through like these hoops to, to like make it work. You could, you could just play that off that that was, that was who she was, you know? Yeah. There's literally zero reason for them to be in relationships at that moment in time. Right. It's all, it's only to provide that backstop of like, well, that's why they don't just get together. Right. But then, but then it makes it worse kind of like, it does. Yeah, no. it's the only thing that, 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 it irked me right out of the gate and then i was like oh they don't explain this they get there to the point of the idea that like well these two people are meant to be together and so like nothing else really matters like like they shouldn't be with other people because there's but like that doesn't necessarily answer the question of like well all right you know well no but again i mean when i when you were dating your wife before you guys got married and when i was dating my wife before i got married i like it's unfathomable to me that i would just be like oh yeah I'm going to go get share a Sunday or a, 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 
an ice cream uh, mix or whatever the hell they did at the serendipity patisserie right. <laughs> on 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 like the doorstep of getting married no less like like and five right, days right. before christmas <laughs> right well, well i mean like like that that is the second component uh, we, we again we don't know how serious the relationships were in the beginning like clearly not very but like and, and it's just and, creepy yeah it's just it i understand why they made the decision but i don't agree There were a couple of things that I thought were really interesting that, that, I, that I noticed. The fact that it's Love in the Time of Cholera, which is a book that John Cusack mentions in High Fidelity, which came out the same year. He, he, he specifically is talking about how he's like, he's, he calls himself like a middleweight. He's like, I'm, I'm not, you know, the, 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 the best looking guy, but I'm not the worst looking guy. Like I've read books like, like Love in the Time of Cholera and he says, and it's about girls, right? He's like, I'm kidding. But like, that's a line in, in High Fidelity, which is, this is very interesting that it happens in the exact even know same that. book. Yeah, I, I love High Fidelity, by the way. Yeah, it's great. That's a it's that's a good movie. Although it's it's interesting, and perhaps someone will bring that uh, to the podcast. I, yeah, I, I haven't seen it in a long time. I have. I've watched it several times over the years, and it's interesting the ways in which it reflects maybe who we are at different stages of our life. Also, speaking of John Cusack, there's you know the really interesting buddy comedy aspect with him and Jeremy Piven, who of course co-starred in gross point blank uh in 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 which it, they were in very similar sort of john cusack is doing something crazy and jeremy piven is his buddy who is backing him up and like holding his hand and being there while he while john cusack's doing something crazy it's just the difference is trying to find a girl versus uh, murdering people for hire but it's you know the, the the comedy the buddy comedy aspect is very clearly someone said oh these these guys have good good on screen chemistry oh yeah they, 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 they were great i think those were some of my favorite scenes my my absolute favorite scenes were of course with eugene levy yeah those are the best <laughs> by far. also funny that eugene levy is a better investigator than the journalist <laughs> um well i didn't ask you about about characters right from from your side did you were, were, was there was there a shine? I know you'd only. This is your first time seeing it, but was there a shining star for you, or somebody that that, that really stood out for you? Probably a combination of Eugene Levy and and Jeremy Piven. I really, as human beings, I despised John Cusack and I despised Kate Beckinsale because I was thinking about like their their counterparts. I mean, what I, Lars sucks. We understand that Lars sucks. They established <laughs> right. that Lars sucks, but still, you know, you've been obsessed with John Cusack for this entire time but you're saying yes to getting married maybe don't do that and John Cusack similarly sucks in this like hyper selfish obsessive way where he has never forgotten about Kate Beckinsale but he's literally doing the night before dinner rehearsal with Bridget Moynihan and like she knows it and I just feel I felt bad like it made me feel shitty and again, I think if they make that decision in the first place to where they're they're not in relationships, like it just it, that sets us on this track of these these people being very selfish. And we're supposed to be drawing inspiration from them because they're they're following their heart. Like mean, that's that's the whole thing. Yeah. Jeremy Piven is drawing inspiration to to you know he's he's his hero because he's 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 
throwing caution to the wind and, and following his heart. The whole Greeks only care if you, you know, were passionate about something. Do you remember the philosopher Epictetus? You remember what he said? He said, if you want to improve, be content to be thought foolish and stupid. That's what you've done. I work hard at it. And and same with with Molly Shannon, like that 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 dynamic of she's like you're being crazy, but she's like, but no, like I need like I this I need to make sure that this is you know that this isn't something if if it is something. Honestly, Sarah, I don't understand you anymore. Okay, please tell me something. Tell me anything that makes just a little bit of sense. But again, because of that that sour note right out of out of the gate, it kind of taints the rest of it. So yeah, I mean, I'm fully in favor of people doing what they want to do, what they believe in, but don't fuck up somebody else's life in the process. Right. Yeah, this is a fair amount of collateral damage. <laughs> All right, I'm going to get uh, Gaucho Watch out of the way since uh, it makes its glorious return this week. Uh, Gaucho Watch, where I try to find a connection between uh, this movie and my alma mater, the University of California, Santa Barbara. In this case, it's the town of Santa Barbara because director Peter Chelsom uh, also served as the narrator for a single episode of Psych in 2013, the USA show set oh. in Santa Barbara, thereby returning to glory and fulfilling Gaucho Watch for episode 24. What did you notice out of the soundtrack? I'm curious. So this is another one kind of like Summer Catch where it was, it was, and again, I've mentioned this before, by 2000, 2001, I was really deep just in a death metal and I didn't listen to the radio. So I'm sure there were some hits here, but I didn't recognize any of them. Honestly, I I only I only really caught one. There was a song off of John Mayer's first album that was in the background of like I think when they were maybe at the at the at Serendipity the first time. It was where I was like, oh right, uh, I think that album came out in 2000 or 2001. There was mostly just a lot of like extremely smooth soft rock, <laughs> like like just just like like almost all like one step above elevator music but like you could tell you could tell that they were like actual like current songs except at the very very end the sort of climactic song is a nick drake song which is yeah, a, a, a good choice and I, I love nick drake and and i actually kind of got into nick drake shortly after having watched this but i don't think it was connected it was just like when i sort of discovered his whole catalog of of music in like mid-college if I, can, if I can make one amendment, I did notice uh, Sarah Smile from Hollow Notes, which, yeah. the, which a uh, package cyclist sort of sings to, right. <laughs> to John Cusack before it all goes south. It's you and me forever. Sarah Smile. Yeah, most, it's mostly accompaniment you know pop music sort of sort of to, to fit whatever is going on but um yeah most of it blends into the background i mean it's fine it's inoffensive yes yes speaking of uh of stuff that had come out around that time contemporary stuff uh let's talk about what sets this film in 2001 uh when it was released what, what were some of the most indicative time and, and era uh references or happenings for you the coloring on the subway trains uh, different. So the interior, I guess, pre, well, they shot this in 2000. So I'm not sure if the colors of the subway trains that John Cusack was standing on were a set or not, but the, it was usually the orange lines that had that weird sort of, uh, gross puke yellow color in the background. Th those actually would not be the lines that Cusack is writing because he's usually 
or they show us specifically rather that he's on like a four five six the green green line so i just i just don't know i don't have an answer for that the new york times apparently uses ancient crt monitors at least at the obit station where jeremy piven works <laughs> also very old cell phones of course yeah because it's 2000 and that's mm-hmm. fine the kicker to me i think i already mentioned which is that they removed the world trade center yeah i mean that puts it arguably right after the actual it's, release it's right there yeah so i i had a bunch of stuff I, for, for this uh, broadly just the entire supporting cast being jeremy piven molly shannon bridget moynihan and john corbett really kind of puts this <laughs> into like a five-year window the, the, only, the only reason i think that we didn't have uh both of our classic one-two punch of poorly aged comedy from uh films of, of this era is because there literally was not a non-white character in this movie that had a speaking line i don't think uh, except for maybe like one of the guys on the steps when she goes to his apartment there's but, like a, there's a there's a pakistani taxi oh, driver. cab driver yeah that's right which which well, is just like well, awful right that, that's not stereotypical at all yeah. uh, it, it is an extremely white movie and so there are no jokes at expenses of asian americans however there are at least two intimated to be kind of gay jokes or or references we have uh jeremy piven's drunk uh night before you know rehearsal dinner or whatever that was speech where where he puts on a a voice to talk about a pomegranate souffle that's like a very very flamboyant yeah and he's like oh it's it's different than the souffle right right whatever or the sorbet Uh, i don't remember and then there's the mm-hmm. awkward moment um, between Bridget Moynihan when she meets Molly Shannon and, and, and they're like the mom thinks, or somebody thinks that, that they're a lesbian couple. And instead of just sort of leaving it at like, that's an understandable, awkward moment. Right. Molly Shannon says goodbye, my sweet lesbian lady lover as, as she goes into the elevator and is like, Oh, just kidding. Ha 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 ha. Which like literally is the is the definition of playing that for laughs. Like it was uh, yeah. just a totally unnecessary line. We had some other good good things. I I thought it was hilarious that we basically saw the first iteration of Top Golf. <laughs> which, oh, Chelsea Pierce. Yeah, which is now you know obviously yeah. a very very successful thing. There was the line from Jeremy Piven talking about Sarah and saying that British women don't age well, but that she probably looked like like Baby Spice. <laughs> That's <laughs> extremely 2001. Kate Beckinsale also says, when I was younger, I w- wanted to marry Boris Becker. Uh, nice sports reference a tennis player from, from again, like when oh, she would have yeah, been growing I had up. no idea who that was. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, a very, a very successful 80s, 90s tennis player, which would have been like her childhood, essentially. I thought that maybe the, the thing that held up the best, but that was still very of the time, was uh, the Jeremy Piven's rant about internet companies and, and that was really digital good. plantation owners. <laughs> that, like that whole thing, like I was like, oh, that's, that hasn't changed. What about privacy law, huh? Forget about privacy laws. You know what privacy laws do? No. They protect millionaires. You know who those millionaires are? Who? Tell them who they are. Tell them. Kids your age, pimple-faced college dropouts who have made unhealthy sums of money forming internet companies that create no concrete products, provide no viable services, and still manage to generate profits for all of its lazy day-trading son-of-a-bitch shareholders. Meanwhile, as a tortured member of the disenfranchised proletariat, you find some altruistic need to protect these digital plantation owners? Wow. <laughs> but, but it was like the beginning of that, right? Dot-com bubble era. I've got, I've got one that I actually totally forgot. There are no Lyft drivers. It's all yellow taxis. Oh, yeah, sure. And they somehow everybody always gets the first taxi they call. <laughs> Never fucking happened in New York. Yeah. 
Yeah. Although it's it's funny, uh, just as true then as now, it is uh, quicker to run through New York City than to try to take a cab. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, there was one other thing I which which goes back to the like not necessarily a, a plot hole, but like, and I don't know if the New York Times is different because it's the New York Times, but in most papers historically, an obit writer is the entry level position. It is like the first job you get when you're yes. right out of college, not yeah. when you're 35 year old Jeremy Piven. <laughs> Maybe he just got stuck there for for 12 years. I I don't know, but like to have him be the obit writer feels mm, like it, it is very much an entry-level job generally maybe it's a commentary on his his suckiness i mean because his, his his girlfriend does move like bail on him so wife right i think but yeah i don't know i thought i, thought I don't think I, actually they don't ever really go into it no, the only time the only time the relationship is brought up before he says she's moved out is they say we never see them fight, which is actually another great callback where it's like, we've been fighting for years right. later on on the plane. Yep. All right. So what, what do you uh, what do you think has happened to uh, to our, our characters? We know what's happened to the world, so we can maybe just gloss over that. What, what, what has happened to our characters in, in this idyllic version of New York uh, in the intervening 20 years since this movie was made? So my assumption is that John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale, since they're so obsessed with each other, they have actually started. And I won't go so far as to say it's a cult. But perhaps a relationship advice network wherein they try to convince the entire New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, tri-state area to sort of come on board with this whole serendipity thing. And it goes fucking terribly. With any luck, they're sued into oblivion. They go quietly to Brooklyn or Staten Island, even, even farther out, where they can no longer harm anyone. Because of I, Kate Beckinsale's weirdo beliefs, I, I have a different geographical direction that they that they're going. Because uh, Jonathan, of course, works for ESPN, which does not allow too many people to work far away from the mothership in Bristol, Connecticut. And I just assume he would get called home uh, to uh, be a producer on the obscenely large campus that they have up there, and that would allow Sarah to uh, cater her therapy business to the wealthy Connecticut elite helping offset his sports journalism salary. <laughs> it, is, it is just such a ridiculous... Money's, money's never an object, but it's, it's <laughs> you know, you're going to have to think about it. They're just, the, the, her whole family is staying at the Waldorf for I don't know how long, like whatever, you know? We don't even know what she does. Like this... Yeah, and, and for the record, the Waldorf Astoria is ridiculously expensive. Just right. In case there's anybody out here listening who doesn't know, that is like the most expensive hotel in New York. Yeah, they're getting married there. Like that's where they're well, they, well, they just kind of go there apparently. Like that's yeah. just like well, their the whole, whole family is staying there. Like yeah, that's insane. That's like yeah. that's like ten thousand dollars. Right. God knows how much the canceled wedding was. <laughs> is this is this a movie you think could get made again today? I I do. I think it's there's enough charm there. If you eliminate the stuff that we've already identified as problematic, don't. Don't have them be in relationships beforehand. Have it be just two random folks. And, and you can allow... The serendipity idea is fun. 
And I actually did, when I was watching this, start to think about how my wife and I met. If I hadn't left New York when I did and moved to DC, and if Reem hadn't come over to DC from Egypt, I never would have met her. And if she hadn't started at this news organization that I work at, we never would have gotten married. There's a lot, there's a lot of, of fun stuff to think about. So I think it's definitely possible that you could, you can make this, but, but keep the, don't make them creeps. Don't, don't make the audience feel uncomfortable about your main characters cheating on significant others. Right. Yeah. I, uh, if I hadn't had a terrible New Year's experience the year before causing me to only want to go to a house party that turned out to be super lame <laughs> that I then left after midnight. And if my wife hadn't gone to uh, a really expensive thing that was also super lame that they also therefore bailed on and we hadn't ended up on this at the same bar on new year's eve we would never have met <laughs> probably in all, in all likelihood so right yeah a lot of things have to happen my biggest thing with, with it like conceptually i think it's fine but I, there's just, there are not a lot of mid-range rom-coms anymore this was like a a $25 million movie or something like that. Well, this was apparently the this director's first profitable film. I guess this <laughs> guy had been, I guess, I guess he'd been trying to do this kind of thing for a while. And um, so, so it, was, it was estimated at 28 million at the time. And wow. which is, you know, closer to probably 40 now. And, and, it, and it doubled that uh, and, and worldwide basically tripled that coming back. But and then he, and then he was successful after this. So but you just don't see a lot of $40 million movies anymore. You either have ind yeah. independent, small budget, you know, boutique shop kind of movies, or you have a hundred plus million dollar movies. Like there's just that, that middle class of, of movie doesn't really exist because studios don't want to take that big of a swing. Hi, Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> Please make more middle of the road stuff. Well, they, they are, they are making more romantic comedies there has been at least something of a resurgence of romantic comedies. Like Always Be My Maybe was, was, was very good. Will, you had mentioned before Crazy Rich Asians was also very good. But I, you know, I was thinking about like, I think to sell it today, like it maybe not quite as, as innocent and, and, and everything like it, the, I was thinking about the lovebirds, the, the Issa Rae, Kamel Najani movie, right. Where like they accidentally kill somebody or it's like, it's like, or they didn't do it, but like they're wanted for murder. And like, it's, so it's like, it's a romantic comedy, but with this like other action, you know, sort of high stakes, like, like, I feel like there would have to be today to sell it. There'd have to be some, something more than just this sort of, oh, we're destined to be together that like, more more ridiculous obstacles just just because of the way things go these these days and uh as i've mentioned before it also wouldn't be so exceedingly white <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think there are again i agree with you i think there are a lot of options out there i i don't maybe maybe it's extraordinarily difficult to write a rom-com that resonates with folks but given the number of hallmark movies i've been subjected to because of my mother i just feel like that they are easy to write maybe there's just a hook that needs to be put in there for general audiences maybe it needs to be oh uh what about like a crime rom-com that'd be well, funny. I, yeah i mean that's that's kind of what, what i was saying like something that, that that has a little more like real world stakes you know what yeah. i mean there's like something something larger going on there yeah i mean hallmark is hallmark right i mean that's it's its own universe like yeah we're talking, so, yes this could absolutely be a hallmark movie if you if you softened it up and doed it up a little bit but like anyway. sprinkled a little powdered sugar on it but but if you 
if it was going to be a, a studio release, I think I think there'd have to be something a little edgier to it. There's a way to do the rom-com that would introduce some gritty real world stuff that would really work and resonate, especially because it's 2021 and we're all kind of kind of crazy, but we need a little bit of hope. We need to feel good. And there's nothing wrong with a feel good movie. Yeah. It's totally okay. And, and, you know, to, I think what works about this movie is it, it is feel good in, in this sort of wistful, in a way where of course, you know, it's going to work out. It's romantic comedy. It's going to work out somewhat somehow in the end, but they're on the poster for God's sake. Yeah. But, but at the same time, like there's, there is enough like weight there in, in that, we've gone over like the, the initial relationship thing is, is a stumble, but, but the fact that they, they basically have to admit that these people are not right for them, like for the, before it works, right. They're chasing each other and it's not working until they, until they both face the fact that like the people that they're with are not right for them. And once they do, then they actually meet like there's, they, there is this sort of karmic payoff of like, yeah, you can, you'll, you can keep chasing each other through, through all these things. And it's not going to happen until you stare down your actual circumstance and we don't we don't really see well we literally don't see yeah uh, but we don't see them have that conversation right, right? Kate, Kate, uh, Kate Beckinsale does a hand wavy thing on the plane and I guess the the, the cleanup guy for the wedding says oh it's over right. as he's stacking chairs and she's like yeah hey, what do you mean it's over uh, and then right although oh, I never I happened. did uh, I, I definitely did get a laugh out of her her and she's like, oh, that's terrible. And she's like crying, but she's like super happy. That they, like that, it was a well, that was a well little played uh, scene there. Um, I do, I do have, there was one line that did make me actually laugh out loud. I, can I take a guess at what it was? Good. Let's just pray he's a bald fascist who wipes his nose and puts it <laughs> under the car seat. Let's just pray he's a bald fascist who picks his nose and wipes it under the car seat. Okay, so that's actually, I did, I laughed out loud at that one too. I think it might have been a Eugene Levy thing, where, or Levy rather. He's massaging Jeremy Piven's shoulders. <laughs> He's like, why are you so tense? He's like, you're freaking me out. Excuse me. Why so tense? Well, because you're freaking me out, all right? Is there another space you can oh, be in? Oh, excuse moi uh-huh. As he's reading through all the things, that right. made me actually like just cackle. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was so weird. Yeah, right. There's no reason for it. Like he probably just started doing it on set, and they're like, "You know what? Let's roll with this. Let's just have fun with it." <laughs> it, was, it was legitimately funny. Having both him and and John Corbett, who like that role could have been dull, like, but you know, it could have just been like a weirdo. But he he did a really good job of of making that role just hilarious, and you know, uh, what was he on? He was on uh, Northern Exposure. Was he the guy in Northern Exposure? I think so. Who's in my big fat Greek wedding right around this time? Yeah, 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 yeah. Gosh, what else is he in? He's in a ton of stuff. He just doesn't. Yeah, he's often he's often a, a secondary. Doesn't get the uh, respect he deserves. So yeah. Big. All right. Any other bits and pieces before we wrap this thing? No, I think this is a this is a fine movie that probably deserves a remake or a, a reimagining of. of some capacity the direction is good it's actually it's wonderfully shot it's actually filmed on location which is rare these days because marvel has cgi'd the hell out of everything and all the other studios have decided that we don't actually need to be there but there's something about 
this this kind of puts the romantic in the romantic comedy thing you're on the sets like you're 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 there this is filmed in new york and san francisco and toronto you're there there's no cgi in this except removing the world trade center yeah and to your point there are some good pan shots some like nice you know follow our characters as they move through the world yeah. uh, um which you know from above and and you see the falling leaves or you see the snow or you see like 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 these nice these nice big shots it's it's unlike a lot of stuff in that era which is these tight shot reverse shot you know two three second clips there's some nice long you know sort of fluid shots there's there's that the where they just miss each other in the cab is a really nice shot where oh gosh yeah. it swings around the cab and you so you're, you're seeing it all sort of play out at, at once and and yeah it, it's it's well acted it's it's well written uh with the exceptions we mentioned but i mean the, the script itself is tight and and is not chock full of of holes and problems uh it pays off its setups and it has a lot of setups uh for especially for such a short film yeah everybody does their job competently there's we we don't have our our one character who's acting in a different movie i don't think in this movie like like eugene let levy is the most weird one we but still, he, but we he, still but need to for that but yeah yeah i know yeah we'll, we'll, we'll come up with one but right like right we don't have the the uh the honorary john c mcginley uh philly scout of of this movie yeah i mean i like i i definitely remembered liking it and re- recommending it uh and i don't feel bad about that it's i i, I definitely still like it it's 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 not a movie I'm going to like line up to watch again anytime soon. But one of the things that I enjoyed about it was there were things I had forgotten that were enjoyable. Like there were, I had forgotten about John Corbett's character and how funny he was. And, and so like I got good stuff out of going back and watching this again, because there were, there was enough there outside of just the, Oh, right. They both or at least she, and then by sort of by the end, he believes in this sort of fate, you know, meeting, um like there there was more than that the, 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 there was it was a more fully developed world than that yeah i totally agree there's definitely worse ways to spend 90 minutes and actually this one might work for folks should we ask the all-important question i mean i i think i just answered it. <laughs> <laughs> i will answer the all-important question i think i like this movie yeah yeah i i i i, I definitely still like this movie so yeah Noah, do you have anything to promote at the end of this episode? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you want to read about me uh, taking on a, an extremely stupid challenge that I imposed upon myself when I was back in the Bay Area the last time. Uh, I'll do a little Bay Area tie. Uh, I tried to climb uh, an extremely large hill from my childhood uh, on a bike, which turns out is the steepest climb in Northern California. You can see how well I did or didn't succeed at SF Gate. And I got nothing. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Make sure you're following us on Twitter and on Instagram, as always, at like this movie. Feel free to jump into the comments using hashtag ITILTM. Uh, we're booking guests for the next few weeks, so we will have guests returning with our next episode, episode 25, coming up next week. I Think I Like This Movie is created by Noah Frank and hosted by Noah Frank and Will Vitka. Editing by Will Vitka. All music on the show, unless otherwise noted, provided courtesy of the South County All-Stars. Copyright 2021.
Dean. And who may I say is calling? Uh-huh. Hang on. Your editor. Hi. No. Didn't get didn't get a chance to write that one. Uh didn't didn't write that one either. Uh, with all due respect, sir, uh, they'll all still be dead tomorrow. <laughs>